This is a HeadGum Podcast. Andrew, I just feel like I'm not online enough. <laughs> really? Yeah, it bothers me every day. Sometime in the last month, I just got this feeling that maybe I'm not online enough. Do you well, have a service that could help me? You know, a way to become more online is to have your own special website hmm. where that's your online presence where you can uh, sell stuff and market your brand and see analytics. And you know what's really good at helping you do all that stuff? It's Squarespace. Squarespace. That's right. It's a podcast, so you're listening to us talk about Squarespace. Squarespace is a website that helps you make other websites. One's about yourself, one's for your online business or your uh, brick and mortar business, I guess, if you're getting back to that. Yeah. You're in the these vaccinated times. They help you make the website of your dreams by giving you award-winning design, world-class engineering, beautiful templates, powerful e-commerce tools, and they've got 24-7 customer support. There's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. And you get a free unlimited hosting, top-of-the-line security, and dependable resources to help you succeed. Craig, don't you want to succeed as you become more online, the most I, online version of yourself? I would love to succeed at being the most online. All right. Well, if you at home would like to become more online like our friend Craig, go to squarespace.com slash overdue for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use the offer code overdue to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash overdue. Use the offer code overdue. Save 10%. Squarespace. Get online. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And y'all didn't hear this because it happened before we started recording, but Craig did hop on our Skype call and tell me making content like that great Rob Schneider character who makes copies. And so I am pitching you on a book, which is an alternate history novel. <laughs> <laughs> where Rob Schneider is still a bankable star today. Ooh. We're oh, what if like Rob hot Schneider chick movies four. <laughs> Rob Schneider movies still in theaters with new movies today. Huh. <laughs> mm. What's that thing he says in all the Adam Sand it you can do it, he oh, says. Oh yeah, that's good. That's funny. That's funny. Is that the title? Do you think Rob Schneider has an autobiography? And is it called You I Can Do It? <laughs> it should be. It should be. Maybe Remember we'll have to read it one gig day. Male Gigolo? That guy? That movie? I think I watched that movie in a high school health class. Mm, what what was the it was it would no angle. It, it wasn't it wasn't an assignment. <laughs> okay. It was like a teacher's out end of year thing. Man, don't I know why like we watched that one. High school health class was already kind of a teacher's out. Yes, correct. In a lot of ways. This PE teacher does not want to play dodgeball anymore. Mm -hmm. Time to teach you about babies. Yeah, here comes Mr. Hamilton in his Adidas tracksuit <laughs> to tell me about my changing body. <laughs> okay, we got to get down to brass tacks <laughs> we here. We did not, uh, we're not on our book podcast today talking about the autobiography of Deuce Bigelow, Male Gigolo. We are instead covering a book. That neither of us have read. 
I don't know what that's. Well, like. I read it. Well, I've read it now. You read it now. As um, of like six hours ago, I've successfully read it from front to back. And Andrew's going to tell me about this book so that we have a sense of what's going on. And if you want to go read it, you have a reason to. Or if you want to just pretend like you've read it, you'll have about an hour's worth of podcast to lean on when you do so. Andrew, what <laughs> book did you read this week? I read Farthing by Joe Walton. Farthing. Farthing. Not far thing. Mm. Not farting. <laughs> not not a just an aspirated farting. Farthing. <laughs> like uh that's like a British currency yeah, it's term. Like, it's like little bad coins. Okay. Little low like pennies kind of. Excellent. I think except I think pennies is something else in England. <laughs> <laughs> Do you almost say English? No. Oh, okay. I said England. Okay. Um, anyway, Farthing. Farthing by was Joe a Patreon recommendation from Libby. Thank you, Libby. Um, I pulled some quotes from Libby about the book. Um, took me a while to come up with a book I wanted you all to read because it had to be something I cared enough to evangelize for, but didn't love so much that it would hurt if you didn't have my exact experience with it. That is mm. the exact realm of recommendation that we love. Yeah. Um, Libby continues, I have one farthing. It's a classic English country house mystery set in an alternate universe where World War II turned out differently. Um, one thing I find interesting about the book is that it uses the genre-ish plot idea of an alternate history, but puts it in the background to make it the setting for another type of genre story. Uh, a lot of the appeal of the book is how it summons up tropes and then subverts them. I don't think it pulls it off. I don't think it pulls off everything it wants to do flawlessly, but it's a book I really enjoy, a book that feels very current for probably obvious reasons. I guess we'll discuss that and would love to hear you talk about. Thank you. Yeah, Libby. like th there's a way toward the end of the book, like in the in the last few chapters where it fully stops being a country house mystery, murder mystery novel and becomes a political alternate history novel. And it really feels... I don't know, maybe if the, so there are two sequels to this book. There's a half penny and there's half a crown, all currency. The That's Small the Change series, it's called. Yes, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is about both the currency and the small change, the butterfly flapping its wings yep. and Hitler is still in charge of Germany in 1916. <laughs> um, but, uh, man, what was I saying? Um, but that the other books seem to be, I think, a, oh, more overtly. Yeah, yeah. So if if they they are also in the same world, there are there is at least one major recurring character based yep. on the plot synopses I've read. But it's not like they're not like direct sequels that fully continue the story. That is, it seems to be here. adventures in a little bit. Mm -hmm. And if I think if the second book had directly picked up, maybe the way this book takes a hard right turn toward the end would feel a little more satisfying. Cause you'd find out more about like what happened to the people. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Who go from being like suspects in a murder mystery to literal refugees. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, like I, I enjoyed it. I always have, it's always interesting to think about alternate histories and especially like when you're talking about, the process of writing a book like we do on the show, like what do you choose as your inflection point and why? Like that's always, that's always a lot of stuff to talk about. So, well, we will probably find a decent chunk of that to talk about today in the time that we have quickly. I'll let our readers know Joe Walton born 1964 in Wales, studied at the university of Lancaster, 
moved to Canada in 2002, living in Montreal, I think, among some other places. Um, from her website, it says, she comes from Wales but lives in Montreal where the food and books are much better. I didn't say it. Joe Walton wow. did. Wow. Wow. Walton's first novel, The King's Peace, was published in 2000. There are two sequels to that. All That's set. about the king's gun, right? Yeah. <laughs> king's giant gun. Uh, it's, it's all set in Arthurian Britain, and he was the only one who had a gun. It's very weird. <laughs> Um, I'm in a weird mood tonight. <laughs> I don't know if anybody else is picking up on that, but it's going to be a weird one. Farthing's first sci-fi novel was this book, um, though it's also a cozy mystery, which we'll talk about. It was nominated for the Nebula, the Quill Award, among others. And as we said, it's part of the Small Change Trilogy with Happeny or Haypenny and Half a Crown. Um, some folks may also know her for her 2012 novel, Among Others, which did win the Nebula Hugo and some others. It's a quasi-autobiographical fantasy novel that has some epistolary elements, mm. I believe. Um, this book from her website says, I wrote it between April 29th and May 17th, 2004, in 19 continuous writing days with no breaks at all. This remains my record for speed at writing a novel. Dang. That's pretty fast, actually. Yeah, that's really fast. Um, and the I couldn't tell you a single thing I've done in the last, like, 19 days. <laughs> I, bu- I built a new bed today. We've made some podcasts, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Depending on which 19-day chunk you take, it could be two to three podcast episodes. Just for this podcast. You've made some others, too. Yeah. Don't I'm forget that. Time, po- time to make the podcast. Time to make the podcast. Um, this book specifically was inspired by a Josephine Tay novel um, called Brett Farrar. Um, <laughs> I thought you were going to say Brett Farr. <laughs> it's a, a Josephine Tay novel about Brett Favre. Um, mm-hmm. She wrote about this for Tor.com. She did a lot of writing for Tor.com. Some of that has been collected in a book called What Makes This Book So Great. She wrote a number of articles over uh, over the years doing a little bit of what we do here on the show, which is like kind of diving into works i think specifically in sci-fi and fantasy and kind of being like what was going on here why is it maybe worth reading how is it aged a little poorly or or not or aged very well um and she was reading about this you know rereading this josephine tay book it's and she talks about how it has like kind of a nebulous time setting like it appears to be set in 1949 or late 40s based on some technological things, but the atmosphere is very 1930s, like pre-World War II, but Mm -hmm. also a guy in the book definitely references the Blitz happening, Mm -hmm. and people are like holidaying in France. (laughs) Um, And she says, anybody who would like more books set in my small change universe can read this as one. It was partly to recreate the atmosphere of reading the domestic detail and comfortable middle-class English horsiness of Brett Farrar with the thought of Hitler's (laughs) at the Channel Coast and nobody caring that I wrote them. Um, So she was kind of interested in this particular version of British, like, upper-class society that is also part of, like, the Astors and people who are, have, were looked back on as, like, advocating for German appeasement because they had, you know, thought that they maybe had things to lose if UK entered the war. We saw a lot of that in the States as well. Um, and then she also, in another interview I found, talked about being motivated by 
the invasion of Iraq by the United Kingdom and the United States um, after 9-11 and that she was like in Canada surrounded by people whose countries hadn't done that and mm-hmm. like her she was likening it to Hitler moving on Czechoslovakia just like moving in making a military move that the entire geopolitical community is like no don't do that please don't do that mm-hmm. um, and she started writing the book not long after the Abu Ghraib revelation. So just starting with a like a supreme place of anger about her homeland and the political choices that it had ever made. Um, yeah. So I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about speculative fiction before we dive into the book proper, Andrew. Is anything else you want to say about Walton or, or this book's history um, as we come to it? I mean, not about the the book like as such, like um like as far as alternate history stuff we have we've done i think like man in the high castle is probably the one like world war ii specific alternate history i can the other one that we've done you read a yiddish policeman's union which is another like oh what if the state of israel didn't exist and everybody settled in alaska instead you're right you're right you're right yes i don't Um, think we have read any specific like civil war uh, like American Confederacy alternate fiction, and honestly, I'm I'm okay not in. With yeah, that not one. up for that. Yeah, like <laughs> I don't, I don't need to by any means. I, I don't, and just now I'm thinking like, okay, what is it about me not wanting to read yeah. about like enslaved African Americans, but I am okay with reading about the a Europe where Jews are more persecuted. Like, yeah. I don't. I think maybe it's just that it feels closer and like a bad idea that we keep having to tell people not to have (laughs) yeah that's fair and i don't want to like perpetuate it i don't know yeah no i hear that um i guess it like world war ii alternate history sometimes feels like people trying to learn something from yes from from the way history did turn out yeah i hear that and and i don't know maybe maybe there's some civil war alternate history that uh, that does that too but i have not it's not a genre I've dabbled in a whole lot, and I just don't really care that much to, you know? Sure, that's fair. Like, when the Game of Thrones guys tried to do that Confederacy show, I was like, you know what? Maybe not. Maybe and then they not. didn't. And then they did. Yes, good so job, Andrew. Thank you, for, mm-hmm. thank you for your service on that but one. But it's, it's this, this one I thought was interesting, because sometimes when you get into an alternate history, it's like, it is hard to find the exact point at which the timelines diverge. Like, either it was a lot of small things over time, or you are so far past the inflection point point of yeah. divergence where so many things are different that you can't it's hard to look back and like pinpoint the exact thing but this one has um a pretty precise uh departure point so there was this point in uh 1940 so this is before uh Pearl Harbor yep this is before like America had had substantially substantial Substantively? Substantively. Substantively. <laughs> involved in the in the war at all. And in fact, there there w- was an isolationist element in the U.S. that really didn't want to get involved in another like European war specifically. And there was a whole law passed where the U.S. could not support any warring nation. Like it was the Neutrality Act or something. Yeah. Um, 
And so in 1940, 41, um, FDR was like, he, did this exchange where he like declared a bunch of like ships and, and arms like obsolete or something. And so he'd sent them to the UK in exchange for land or something. It was, it was technically not breaking that law against backing. (laughs) Sure. Backing a country. But anyway, he did that. And then, you know, there was ongoing cooperation between the U S and Britain from that point. And then, Pearl Harbor happens later and we engage like more fully against the entire, like, I don't know. There are a couple of different theaters of, of world war two and it's, it's different on both sides. But anyway, in this book that didn't happen, like the U S didn't send any aid or didn't send like military aid. And so in, without that backup and feeling pretty isolated at, you know, near a peak in, Germany's power, like France has been conquered, Poland's been conquered, like, you know, they, they have spread pretty far and England is kind of standing alone on that side of the ocean. Uh, they uh, negotiate a peace with Hitler, an armistice, basically, so Hitler can pivot and uh, start a land war in Asia. Yep. <laughs> Always a good idea. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and yeah, that's kind of where the book is. Like, It's a few years after that. Um, Britain is, it's, I don't know. We, I, this is probably, we should, we should talk more about the book when we're talking about okay. this part, but that's, that's kind of where we are. Like Britain is, uh, is in this position of relative security, but like still, you know, Nazi Europe is, is right across the channel. Sure. Uh, Hitler is still locked in a, in an unending war with Russia uh, President Charles Lindbergh Great. of the U.S. is attempting to uh, broker like economic deals with the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere, mm. which, if you're not familiar with it, is the the like propaganda effort on the part of the Japanese government at the time to band together a bunch of Asian countries into its own like sort of. I don't know what the what the word for it would be. Sure, sure. I it's buy own, it. It's own like group. Yeah. Um, um, before we take our, yeah, that's kind of where we are. Before we take a break, I do want to highlight what I think is the when I was first reading about this novel, I encountered kind of the broad sense that the U.S. did not enter World War II, and this that's where the world of the novel comes. I don't know if this gets talked about in this book or in later books. From what I was reading, the di- the divergent point very specifically is what if Rudolf Hess's peace mission had been successful and I had to look up who Rudolf Hess was. And this is just, I just want to share this because I never learned this in school. Yeah, I didn't know about <laughs> Rudolf Hess, but it's a wild story. But like before you'd say this, um, that that was successful because the U.S. didn't support it. Okay, Britain. okay, great. So it's like just after, but yes, you're right. Okay, right, so in 1940, Rudolf Hess, third in line to lead Nazi Germany, says, hey, we're going to go fight in Russia soon. Maybe I should go reach out to the U.K. and just like navigate a peace because like a two-front war would be tough. I don't think I'm going to tell Hitler about it even though he's my boss because I've got my own thing going on. Forgiveness, not permission. <laughs> so- Move fast and break things in 
Nazi Germany. He writes a letter to the Duke of Hamilton, which is, of course, intercepted by MI5. Guy never hears back from the Duke of Hamilton, but thinks, you know what? I should probably still do this. I'm going to spend months learning how to fly a plane. I'm going to fly there in six months, and it's going to be a messy flight because I, devo- I have to avoid detection. I have to get myself oriented off the sea. I'm going to run out of fuel and parachute out of my plane. And then I'm going to land, and they're going to catch me because they know I'm German, and they intercepted my letter. Mm-hmm. And they totally lock him up, and years later, he stood trial in Nuremberg. After Hitler heard about it, he like very publicly was like, this guy does not represent me. Mussolini, do not worry. We're still good. <laughs> and this, like, it was just, he became this bizarre footnote that was totally disavowed by Nazi Germany. And it was just wild to read this guy's story of like, he was trying to create an alternate history himself, like (laughs) just on his own. Um, Well, and then he is, he is imprisoned until like 1987 or something when he takes his own life. Like he lived forever. And then they tore that prison down because they didn't want it to be like any sort of martyr site or something. Hmm. Just this like, bizarre thing it's just it is a fascinating thing to hang your divergence point on because it is like what if this guy went this way let me tell you about rudolf hess um all right well let's take a quick break the pacifist you never was <laughs> <laughs> let's take a quick break and then uh, you'll tell me more about this cozy mystery history okay Andrew, would it be helpful if we had another sponsor for this show? Sure. Well, then I will happily tell you about our other sponsor this week, BetterHelp, which makes it's better, right? And it's helpful. Yeah, I mean, it's better than than good help. <laughs> it's better help. Uh, they make professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient, so anyone who struggles with life's challenges can get help anytime, anywhere. BetterHelp will assess your needs, match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and you can start communicating with them in a safe, private, online environment in under 48 hours, and you can send a message to your counselor at any time. Service is available for clients worldwide, and licensed professional counselors have a broad range of expertise. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor, BetterHelp.com Overdue. Join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, better H-E-L-P.com slash Overdue. That's a good ad read. Thanks. It's a good one. I don't feel comfortable kind of riffing on that one. Yeah, no, it's not so. good too. It's not like Squarespace. No. And they also have, they have way too much, they have way too many talking points for a one minute ad read. So that is a recipe Better for. Better help does. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Andrew, before you tell me more about this book, I do want to tell you what Joe Walton thinks about other alternate histories related to World War II. Yeah, tell me. I mean, yes. On her yes. on her website, she has a Q&A section that says, "What do you think of Philip Roth's The Plot Against America?" I haven't read it. "What do you wow. think about Philip K Dick's The Man in the High Castle?" I haven't read that either. "Why haven't you read them?" I've read other things I didn't much enjoy by those authors. <laughs> wow, okay. Yeah, I was going to say to 
put those in a frequently asked questions thing, I mean, to, even to say you haven't read them <laughs> is kind of its own answer. And then she immediately the follows it up with like a bunch of nonfiction recommendations, including like Orwell's and Churchill's letters and stuff. Um, anyway, yeah. tell me about this book. What's going on in this book on the ground so, level? Yeah, so we are dealing with two protagonists. You get uh, the first person account of Lucy Kahn, who is a sort of a, a she is from the family of a, like an English aristocratic family, the farthing set they're called. It's okay, one of the things the book is is named after, but it's based on this real life group of folks, including the Astors, who I, who you mentioned, yep. I think, who are reputed to have had like appeasement-y I saw that, leanings. Yeah. yeah, and th- there's some question as to how, I don't know how far those went. Um, people who were part of that set, who was what's the real name of the... The Cliveden the set, named Cliveden after... Set, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, all did note that they their names were all in the uh, Nazi black book of names of people who were to be immediately detained were Germany to invade Britain. Yeah. So, <laughs> so maybe not like the best of friends. Yeah, maybe not like you know fascists fully but you know interested in they're just asking questions <laughs> they're just asking questions about okay it. so her first name lucy yes so okay. uh you, the first person to count of lucy khan who is she is from this farthing set but she has married a jewish man now in britain at this time being jewish isn't illegal you don't have to walk around with like a yellow star on your clothes like they do on the continent but they are looked down upon at at many levels a lot of like politicians and and businessmen and stuff will not will not deal with them they just they deal with a lot of barely disguised hate from a lot of people all the time and when you said in this time you mean in the timeline of this alternate history book I just want to yes, make sure I understood like, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is like ni- mid to late 1940s. Okay. In this alternate timeline where there's been peace since 1941. Sure. Um, so they have gone to uh, the you know her parents' house, and they've been they've been invited by her mother, who is kind of a jerk. <laughs> um and her mom like really really strenuously insisted that they be there at the party even though she does not care much for Lucy and she definitely hates David Lucy's husband. Okay, cool. Not suspicious? Yeah, not suspicious at all. No big deal. Um and so it, you get a chapter from her and then you alternate chapters with uh this uh Scotland Yard inspector named uh, Carmichael. Okay. Who is investigating a murder that happens at this party. A murder most foul. <laughs> this guy, Sir James Thurkey, gets gets murdered at the party. Thurkey gets murkied. No. No. I mean, he did, though. It's part of the book. What you is, said so. What is murkied? He got murked. It just rhymes with Thurkey. Don't move on. Mm, okay. <laughs> So yeah, he got murdered and there's like lips like liquid lipstick on him that's supposed to look like blood and there is a 
a Jewish star pinned like pinned to his dead body with a knife. Okay. And so everybody is like, well, the Jews did it. And David's the only Jew who's here. So maybe David did it. Hmm. And Carmichael gets there and he's like, that would be the stupidest thing (laughs) for a murderer. That would be the straight up stupidest thing for a murderer to do (laughs) is to be the only Jew at a party and to paint like in really big letters. A Jewish person did did this. On the, a corpse. It's true. So he, he, I mean, doesn't seem to, he, he has like a low level antipathy toward them as pretty much everybody does. But he is also like, he, he doesn't go out of his way to hate anybody. And he does accurately clock that this would be a ridiculous thing for a murderer. Does, to do. does he come in with any, um, dislike for the farthings as like a is like is there any class stuff going on there there's some class stuff he doesn't particularly care for the aristocrats who live out in the country he frequently observes that there are two sets of laws based on whether you are rich or poor which i'm glad we solved that problem glad 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 this is an alternate history (laughs) where that exists instead of our history where nothing that doesn't happen love to laugh into the darkness (laughs) On this podcast of ours. <laughs> so he comes in, he accurately sees that something's not right here. What? None of this is making any sense. So you've got in this like milieu of people. So you've got Lucy's parents, uh, daddy and mummy. We'll just call them. Oh dear. The <laughs> Eversleys, I think is their like last that. name. Oh but no. We're going to call them daddy and mummy. Okay. Mummy. Hmm. <laughs> Uh, there is uh, uh, James Thurkey's wife, whose name begins with an A. Uh-huh. Is it? Angela. Angela. Yeah, Angela. Um, so there's Angela Thurkey. There is Angela's sister, Daphne, who Sir James Thurkey actually liked and had been having a long, long affair with. Okay. Um, there is Daphne's husband, uh, Mark, I think, mm-hmm. who is gay. Okay. But semi-closeted. I mean, he's been, he has been picked up by the cops for soliciting sex from young boys, but he was a politician, so he got it erased. Huh. Okay. Yeah. And uh, Carmichael also is is gay, but not like telling anybody about it okay he just you know you hear about it because you are in his head like he's one of the protagonists okay about it but it's um so you've got all these people milling around this place yeah i mean it seems like it's it's adhering to the the pretty standard like christy sayers even a little josephine tay like she's riffing on the early 20th century murder mystery cabin Hercule Poirot thing. Yeah, like the lights went out and then when the lights came back up, somebody had been murdered and it was somebody in this room. Yeah, yeah. And we need to figure it out. Okay. Um, So they're all kind of under house arrest for a couple of days while uh, the cops investigate. Uh, Lucy and her dad, in a moment of stir craziness, get on, go riding and they're shot at by somebody. 
and her father, who has taken a shotgun out to shoot some hairs, does like no scope the guy from a long (laughs) way away with a shotgun. I've played enough video games to know that shotguns are not great long you, distance weapon. Usually they just like the, the end of the hitbox is only like a few meters ahead of you. It just stops mm-hmm. working. But no meters. Hmm, is this an alternate history yeah. where America is socialist <laughs> and we have the metric system? <laughs> meters. I think Halo uses meters. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know America. what John Master Chief does this in space. This isn't, this isn't Reach. <laughs> this is America. <laughs> Okay, continue. Who are these jokes for? I think just for you and me, basically. Hey, that, that's how we started the show, and that's how we're co- and that's bringing how it back. We'll end it. <laughs> so he no scopes the guy. Yeah, and so he ends up he's carrying a card that is like, "Hey, I'm a Bolshevik." Oh, what is up with everybody? I know this is like maybe part of the world. I also know that like there are buttons and pins in my house that are the equivalent of me saying I'm a Bolshevik. Yeah, just like a lot of a lot of stuff in my house all about like unions and unionizing <laughs> and yeah. Um okay, so they So th- this also has happened. And so it's like, man, oh the bo- it must be the bo- Bolsheviks. Mm. The Bolsheviks and the Jews? Oh have no. It out for my for my powerful family? Mm. Oh no. And so nothing is like there these two sets of things have happened. Nothing is quite making sense to Carmichael. And so what follows is like Lucy sort of observing world events. I think you hear you you end up hearing more about like the macro, like global, like political stuff, I think, through Lucy, and then you get more of the like mystery solving, investigating stuff from Carmichael. That would make sense. So yeah, like Carmichael's bosses just give him a couple days to wrap this up. He'd does not you know, David would be the easy arrest here because of the extremely easy trail of evidence sure that exists but Carmichael again correctly surmises if I arrest this guy he will be convicted in the press in 2 seconds like whether he did it or not he will never be able to bounce back from that so I need to take a couple of days and try to figure out what really happened because i don't think he did it i can't arrest him and have him get proven innocent later that will never happen i have to yeah right 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 right. yeah both both because he sort of gets a good vibe from lucy who seems chill and cool okay and because like i said truly the stupidest thing a murderer could do yeah would be to like leave a notarized letter saying that I murdered this guy yeah. next to his corpse. Totally. Um so Carmichael is is going around. He, you know, there's a photo of a woman in this Bolshevik guy's wallet, and so he tracks her down, and it comes to light that what has happened here is um it is this big like political machination on the part of multiple members of the, of the farthing set of that family um, to, uh, to create an atmosphere where, okay, so there, there's an election coming up. So they want to, 
be swept into power in this election and they want to create fear that makes it easier for them to give themselves more power and implement some far reaching laws to stamp out Jewish people and the Bolsheviks who are just truly out of control because look how they murdered some rich people family member and they shot my other family member. Okay. Okay. So yeah, classic fascist power grab. Like, and, and Lucy correctly says when she reads about when she hears the new, like the new prime minister is Mark. What a great name for a prime minister. And he makes this address where he talks about, even though the investigation hasn't concluded, he publicizes to the whole country in his address. Oh, it's the the Jews and the Bolsheviks who did it, and we gotta do we gotta do something about these guys. We gotta do something about it. Mm, okay. Um, and yeah, so it, it ends up being classic classic fascist power grab. Lucy correctly says Reichstag fire when she reads about what's happening and like the plans in the news for you know the laws that are going to. Uh, to go into effect and the extraordinary, you know, he it's a combination of like different democratic backsliding things that we have a lot of experience with. Yeah, sure. Over the last like half decade or, or more where a lot of things that were just norms instead of laws get ignored Mm -hmm. Um, some laws get changed in the name of like national security in a way that immediately has knockdown effects that are not at all about national security, scapegoating and other, uh, making people carry around identification cards with their religion on it and saying, well, I mean, I got to put my religion on it too. Like everybody's getting treated the same. Ignoring the fact mm. that some religions are okay to be and some are not. Yeah, that's it's definitely the same. There's definitely the same. Everybody's being equally put upon here. Um, You're saying she's learning. Like, how is this delivered in the book? Like, does the book like zoom out and become a political thing, or is this no? It's reading in the news. Well, so there there is an element of it becoming a political thing, which is part of the the turn that it takes toward the end that that we talked about. Yeah. Suddenly it's not, it's kind of, it's still about this murder, but also it's about all this political stuff that's happening. So we hear a lot about this through, through the newspaper, but it's also like from Lucy's perspective, she's just hanging out with David at the house. Like they are the, they've been left under house arrest because Carmichael is trying to exonerate David. Mm, Okay. But they can't like be allowed to go anywhere. Um, And David has this whole like, so his whole thing is he is a, He's a real um, George Bailey type. <laughs> he has a small bank that he uses to lend money to uh, Jewish people and to, and to women and like people who the business establishment does not uh, take note of. And in doing this, he ekes out a small but consistent profit. And he also manages to help like lift a lot of people out of, of poverty. Like he... He's pro-union, anti-Bolshevik, does believe in, like, spreading wealth from the bottom up. Okay. And to the extent that you can have a good banker seems to be that. (laughs) Yeah. Banks as a concept, not against them. No, I mean, and and listen, I want to... You're being flip. I I get it. I'm being a little flip. I also want to distinguish, like... 
you can be a good person in a bad system. Yeah. Hey. That's totally possible. Same. It doesn't mean the system's not bad, yeah. but like sometimes the systems we have are the ones that we have. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so he's trying to do so, his best. Well, so he's doing and and there is a uh there's a servant in the house who is a like a Jewish refugee from Poland, I think. And so he's doing his whole like not only is this like financially sound for you and for me, but I am working in the long run to change uh to change how English people think of Jewish people. Mm. Like so instead of reflexively hating people they'll be like well i had really great pancakes at this restaurant that's run by a jewish lady and so maybe they're not all bad mm, okay and i like you can you can understand how he would get to that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. But, but i mean she she gets up and says you know you, the only reason you can believe that is because you have been lucky in your life like when people smashed my the window of my restaurant in Poland. It was not the Nazis. It was Polish people. Yeah. Like there was, there was one guy in the front of the crowd who I had like given a, like a birthday cake to his son, like the week before. And now he's like smashing in the window of my restaurant and, and just completely unable to be reasoned with about it. Yeah. Like she kind of, he, he has a very like, it can't happen here. It's different here viewpoint and she has a no it isn't viewpoint and hers is the one that is ultimately like vindicated toward the end of the book is that when you're reading that passage like does that feel is it still compelling to to read because i could imagine it coming across like well i know he's gonna be wrong about this based on like history and where this book seems like it's going it probably i mean i think that depends on the reader a little bit like if i if me I myself had been reading it when it was written in like the late 2000s. Sure. Then maybe I wouldn't, maybe I, I would, I wouldn't have thought that her viewpoint was more likely to be the correct one initially, but like I've lived through the geopolitical situation (laughs) of the late 2010s. Yeah. Yeah. that, That we've, that we've been in and, and, have seen like how fragile many of these institutions are and how powerful these like nativist nationalist forces are. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, like his, his viewpoint, it does seem totally justifiable. Like I, I was born in England. My parents are English. I fought in the war for England alongside English people. Yep. And I, feel like I've seen enough like kindness and enough institutional strength from this place that I feel comfortable here. And she is, she is turning around and saying, you know, I felt comfortable once too, basically. Hmm. Yeah. And I like, even if, even if that viewpoint is true, like I don't have the luxury of being able to like believe that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is basically what she's saying. So, Okay. So, what is that so, doing? Sorry, I kind of derailed us from like the plot you were building towards. I apologize. It's fine. Like we we don't the the rest of the plot. I don't I don't want to spoil like every individual plot point. I can just talk about like high level stuff. But high level, um, so it turns out that whoever bought that that Jewish star that was pinned to the body of the corpse 
used David's name and address when he bought it in France like a month before. Mm. And David's not been to France, but guess who doesn't care about that? It's everybody's superiors at Scotland Yard because Ah. it's just it's created an easy narrative that is hard to refute. Okay. So Lucy and David like go on the run and they meet up with like a former governess of, of Lucy's who has been helping people escape the, the Reich for a while. And I think appropriately sees the, sees the way things are heading in England now. And so she's already sort of set up to help uh, refugees go to the, the main place uh, Jewish people are going in this timeline are to Canada and to Brazil, uh, America. Yeah. Not going president, there. Uh, under president Lindbergh is, Perhaps unsurprisingly, not welcoming the Jewish people with open arms. Wouldn't think so. Um, they don't want to go to Palestine because, you know, what? there are some people who are trying to set up a state there for the Jewish people, but that's not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, the, the last parts of the book are them like fleeing for their lives before the cops can catch David and Carmichael who did call Lucy after that evidence came to light, like the fake evidence about the star called Lucy to say, we're going to be there in like a couple of hours and you definitely should stay there so that we can arrest you. And Lucy who, like I said, has sort of has a small rapport with Carmichael picks up the subtext that, that he is putting down. Yeah. Where he's so, yeah. yeah so Carmichael like brings, like finds out everything that's happening and is going to like nail the prime minister. And he believes in the, you know, Scotland yard being above politics and how all this stuff's going to go great. So he is called into his like superior officer's office and he does the whole rundown, which I think happens at, at the end of a lot of like murder, like these, I, this, I wouldn't call this a, cozy as I understand it mostly because my idea of cozies is like inextricably linked to like Hallmark Christmas. Sure, sure, stuff. sure. <laughs> like that, that uh, candy cane murder or whatever it was <laughs> book that we read yes. a couple of months ago. Uh-huh. Uh, but I think it's typical country house stuff where the detective puts together everything that he's learned and it. That's, and that's who done it. That's the end yeah. of the crime. And so he does this all and the, his boss is like, cool. It's I'm glad that you figured this out. It's it's good that you're so good at being a policeman. But I know that you are gay and boy, it would be really terrible if anybody found out. So Khan did it. So David did it. Mm. And that's what happened. Right. Mm. And then, and Yeah. Okay. And that's so everybody's in a bad position. And then it just kind of ends. <laughs> it sounds like does it end with does it end well, with Well, it ends I, I I guess I'll like it ends with Carmichael making the decision to stay quiet. Okay. Um and with like a semi hopeful picture of Lucy along with David and like four refugee kids posing as a family who's going to escape to Canada and like live as a family together. Sure. Do you get so like hopeless in a 
big sense where justice is served and people get what's coming to them, but like hopeful in the sense that they personally are probably going to be okay. And they're also helping a lot of kids who like David just happens to be super great with. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And he's just going to be a good dad. Do you get the sense the book. Do you get the sense from the ending that it is setting up another novel? Like I don't what I couldn't find in any of my reading was like if she set out to write multiple books in the series or not. I didn't really find Yeah, any. I'm I'm not sure about that. Like yeah. it, you could easily see you know what what actually happened, which is novels that each skip around a bit between perspectives like i believe carmichael is in all three of them but, but then there are yeah there are other characters but then it's yeah but it's other characters i wouldn't be surprised if you heard something about what you know became of lucy but i don't know that you ever hear directly from her again um or you could see a thing where it just like picks up right where the previous one left off and it eventually has a, a happier ending where and and that that's what often happens in like alternate history novels is there's like some sense that and and I, I was reading about these like they are often from the these kinds of works are often written by like British or American authors and so they often center the story of the like the oppressed people yeah and there's often a sense that our timeline is like the right one. And that the alternate timeline is trying to write itself like to get closer to ours in in some way by like dealing the Nazis or like Imperial Japan, some other future defeat in some way. You know what I mean? No. Yeah, there's the and And also like it does it by its function. It there's like a catch 22 where it can interrogate existing like flaws in the quote-unquote real timeline that you and i live in by like pointing to the ways in which our societies can will and have ever slid into authoritarianism um, Mm -hmm. or whatever it might be but there's the like built-in supposition that like yeah but we but but like it could it could snap back from being worse like they could they could build a slightly better world and here's how we might get there. Um, but it, there is, you're right, there is also an element of like, you you answer the it can't happen here mindset with being like, no, but let me just show you what it would look like if it did. Mm-hmm. And you can follow the footsteps to find out how very possible that is. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think, I don't know, the only genre of alternative history that i found that had its own wikipedia page was what if the axis powers won world war ii (laughs) yeah people been people been mining this one for a while well and you know something that this novel doesn't sound like it does anything even though it's it gets classified under sci-fi because it is an alternate history but it doesn't have any timey-wimey stuff it doesn't have any like, There's certainly not a moment as in The Man in the High Castle where you get like some weird flash where you enter our timeline and it's clear that our timeline exists somewhere. Yeah, I'm not like I'm not sure why it would get a sci-fi classification, honestly. I think that's just tradition at this unless point. Yeah. Yeah, well, unless it's something that happens in a later book. I was just reading like there's this whole it it was either nominated for or won or one of the other books won a sidewise in time award, which is the like I think it's uchronica.com or something. There's a whole like dedicated group of folks who are like studying alternate history fiction. Um, 
and it I was reading a little bit about that and you can see how our understanding of quantum physics and like many worlds theory just like birthed a whole bunch of possible novels Mm -hmm. about how alternate histories work. Whereas Mm -hmm. before that, it really is some like, no, but I'm just going to take a counterfactual and turn it into a story. And we're just going to experiment from there. Um, I did read an article as we kind of wrap up here, Andrew, I read an article by, um, Walton called the suck fairy <laughs> from her time excuse me from her time at tour.com um writing in her in her series and she, she was using the term f- to describe the feeling when you reread a book you liked before and for whatever reason you don't like it as much now mm-hmm. and in the intervening years the suck fairy has come by and made the book worse while you were away <laughs> And she actually drills down in some really fun ways that, like, talks about, like, well, when it's children's books, it's because, like, you imagined things that weren't there because it's, like, the books are by nature simpler than your mind is. And so, like, you fill in all these blanks, you go back, they're not there. She also talks about the other fairies of, like, misogyny and racism and things like that. And she says that this book, she, uh, actually, Libby, who recommended the book, pointed out a comment that she, that she made on that article um, referencing this book where she talks about some of the Josephine Tay and Sayers novels um, and other books of that era that have a bunch of anti-Semitism in them. And Mm -hmm. she says in a response to someone being like, well, what do you do with this? Do you just like name it and move on? She said, it's very hard to deal with. The books are there. It's what it is. You can't rip the suck out of it. You can try to grit your teeth and say, it was 1935. You can write something in response. I have done that. I'd say there's a part of Farthing that comes directly in response to discovering the anti-Semitism fairy at work in Josephine Tay and Dorothy Sayers, uh, but apart from trying to avoid them myself, and I say trying, not succeeding, there isn't much it's possible to do beyond naming and moving on. Um, just interesting that she, that this book is both a reaction to books she has read and enjoyed, but finds mm-hmm. troublesome for re- real reasons, and also is a, like, let me wrestle with history at the same time. Yeah, and I, th- I think when we when we read books like that, that that is sort of the baseline that we're at least trying to do is like naming stuff before we move on to like our goofy, stupid yeah discussion where we f- talk about Rob Schneider for some reason. <laughs> it, a, a, it feels it's just an hour ago that happened. It feels the like Suck Fairy works fast. It feels like an alternate history of this podcast. <laughs> um, I, I find that framing really interesting because she is like she she is working from this rubric where it it is the book that has changed where in reality it's like your perspective that has shifted in some way whether that's because you got older or because you just like lived more and learned more and and laughed and loved more (laughs) She she acknowledges and experienced that experienced more. Yeah, she does. She what she says. What it really does the, the best though is it absolves you of having to beat yourself up over like saying how could I have loved this thing? Like I'm a yeah sure that's fair. It it while you might go like it allows you to say well the person I liked back I was back then liked this book but then the suck fairy came through and made the book worse and I don't like it anymore, uh, which is helpful because it acknowledges change, but doesn't like allow you to blame yourself for it, which is an yeah. interesting. 
the part the part of the equation i guess this can be yeah. our, our button in our like continuing series on cancel culture is like, <laughs> the part of it i have the most trouble with i think is like okay i en- i enjoyed this thing as a kid or as a young adult or, or w- whenever i enjoyed it and i think that there's something there to be enjoyed but because there are other things that are not enjoyable or that are like considered bad viewed through a contemporary lens or whatever. Like what is, what is my duty as like an individual, like passing stuff on to a, another generation? Like what is our duty as people with a platform to like propagate or not propagate the stuff like to, to, to say, you know, I I think Ender's Game is still a, a value. I don't know why we always come back to that, it's but I think good, it's the one that just like example. hits the yeah. most. Yeah, the most like personally for for you, and it's also one that is particularly easy, I think, to separate author from book because the book seems to espouse values that are like directly contradictory to some of the stuff that the author has said. But like, do you know? Do do we just say okay? it's okay for us to enjoy Ender's game, but like, let's not continue passing it on. And so in time it sort of fades from prominence or like, like, what do we, I don't know. What, what was our, what is our job? Like, what should we, what's the right thing to do? And I don't think there is an answer to that question necessarily, but it's just, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how I feel about. Yeah. I hear that to imagine it happened on Mulberry street or whatever going out of print. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's an interesting thing. It's like, it is, what is, what are ways in which we can be generous to ourselves and say, this was a thing that had value to us. Um, and then maybe you do something like what, uh, Walt, I keep wanting to say that farthing is her last name, but it's that just the name of the book. My stinky brain. Um, Walton says here, which is like, well, I'm going to make something else that is interrogating stuff I cared about and, you know, shifting the conversation a little bit, shining light a little bit differently. Um, and then over time that maybe takes the place of what was there before or kind of crowds it out just a little bit so that the world we want to see is, is better represented than the worlds Mm -hmm. we don't. Not to say that there's not value in knowing what we don't want. Um, I don't know. That's kind of what I'm working with right now. Just on our check-in. I like this check-in, Andrew. Um, We didn't have time to talk about it in this episode. I do want to point people to an interview that Walton did in the... You have to go in the Wayback Machine on the internet. Everybody climb in. Um, It's roomy back here. It is in the Wayback Machine. But you can probably Google yourself there or find it via Walton's Wikipedia page. There's an interview in the... This is is being erasure. The Internet Review of Science Fiction from March 2008. Um, The interviewer is Lida Morehouse. The title of the article is Subversive Pixel-Stained Techno-Peasant, an interview with Joe Walton. Um, She really gets into the portrayal of, uh, like, queerness and sexuality in this book gets into some of the vocabulary she uses for uh like different people's sexualities um 
which is like yeah, we didn't we didn't talk about like the Macedonian Athenian yes. divide in this. Um, and there just some it came up in a lot of the Goodreads reviews I was reading that are like some people being like thinking it's overrepresentative of you know gay people or whatever. It's like whatever. It's the book she wrote, and also like. She based a lot of that vernacular on letters from Daphne du Maurier that she was mm-hmm. reading that she thought were super cool. Like, so I just I think people who are interested in this book who haven't read a lot of what Walton said about it should go check out that interview because it it certainly gave me a lot of the back background information that I've already talked about and has some stuff about the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. So that's that, Andrew. Um, we did it. We did it. And next time, maybe we'll talk about Rob Schneider some more. Um, thanks, mm. everybody, for listening. You can send us an email about your favorite Rob Schneider film. Please don't do that. At OverduePod at gmail.com. Hit us up on Facebook and Twitter at OverduePod. Thanks to Mark, Alicia, Sarah, Caroline, Graham, Arista, Kelly, Stephanie, Tom, April, Marcy, Natalie, Carter, and many more for reaching out to us in the past week. Thanks to Nick Lorangis, who composed our theme song. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? OverduePodcast.com is the website. If you go there, you can find links to books that we have read, the ones that we are going to read. Um, our April schedule is not up now, but it will be soon, maybe by the time you listen to this. Yep. Um, we have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash OverduePod. Um, subscribe there, and you can get access to bonus episodes early. You can get access to our current long read project where we are reading Don Quixote you can join us for bonus apps and stuff it's cool yeah hop in on the on the youtube live chat for bonus apps uh this month we're gonna do a bonus recording about a book called lost cat that i was recommended by a former co-worker because my cat disappeared yeah so expecting to work through some stuff on that one I got the full schedule for you. Let me tell everybody you didn't see it on social media. Uh, it, so we just read Farthing by Joe Walton. Next week, I'm going to be talking about The Mouse and the Motorcycle by the late Beverly Cleary. Vroom, vroom. Then Andrew's going to talk about Coraline by Neil Gaiman. Uh, then I'm going to talk about The Tiger's Wife by Atea O'Brett. <laughs> then as, Tiger noises. And <laughs> as Andrew said, we're going to talk about Lost Cat by Carolyn Paul and Wendy McNaughton. Um, and they're obviously, if you have not, uh, scrolled back up in your, in your overdue feed, we did a feed drop last week, uh, from the folks at Storybound. Go check that out. Tommy Orange reading his own short story, Copperopolis. And we've recently posted our first combo episode of that Don Quixote long read project, Jagged Little Mill. Go check it out. Just listen to it. You'll have a good time. <laughs> I promise. All right. Well, if Craig is done threatening everybody I am. to listen, uh, cool. We'll see you next week. Until then, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.